From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. As the coronavirus continues to impact our lives in a profound way, many people are curious on how to find opportunities during this crisis. So last week, I hosted a webinar that dove into that exact topic. My guest on the webinar was Mike Broker, Deputy Athletics Director for Marquette University. More than 150 people tuned in, and we were amazed by the number of thoughtful questions we received during the Q&A portion. Unfortunately, we weren't able to answer all the questions during the webinar, so we created a bonus podcast episode that addressed the questions that we didn't have time for during the event, and a few more that occurred to Mike during our conversation. If you weren't able to watch the webinar, don't worry. This episode will still be relevant for you as we discuss how to lead during a crisis, how to adjust to a new normal, and what you can do to deal with the stress of the situation. We also have linked the webinar in the show notes if you're interested in watching it after listening to this episode. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. So Mike Broker, thank you for joining me today on Innovators on Tap as we uh, take on some uh, unanswered questions from the Marquette event the other day. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chuck. I don't know if I'm the guest or co-host or just continuing to ride your coattails. But, I, you know, like I said before, any opportunity I get to, to spend with you is an opportunity to learn. So I know we did have a whole bunch of questions we couldn't get to the other night. So maybe if I can shoot some of these questions at you and uh, hear what you have to say. Let's go for it. For companies that are no longer innovating, what are some of the things they can do to jumpstart the innovation? You know, I think the challenge for a company, and let's face it, most companies innovated at some point. That's how they were created. I think the challenge for them is you get really good at something, and innovation typically means you have to become good at something else. And I think for most organizations, that's going to be a really tough change. And and so what I would say is, you know, if I'm in a, a large organization, there's got to be some catalyst for change. So honestly, the the most innovative large companies I've seen are ones that had to change, right? Their business forces them to get in a situation. I think as we talked about uh, in the event the other night, I think that's athletics is there right now, right? There's things in athletics that you know, you and I have talked about for a decade that haven't changed. I think this is going to be one of those moments, but I'm not sure that there's a, uh, it's really hard to just decide to change to create that kind of change in an organization unless there's some some catalyst that forces it. Because if you think about what you're going to do, you're going to take something that's already working and you're going to purposely do something that will probably cause that to not work anymore. And for most people, there's a lot of disincentive to do that. You know, you actually said something quite interesting within that. And you said at some point in time, everybody innovated. It, if, if innovation's embedded in the company at some point, if we just make that that assumption, h- how do you keep it at the forefront of all the time? You know, how, how do you how do you live it as one of your values so that you don't let the idea of just I don't want to call it slow evolution because maybe that undersells what you're doing as a, as an organization, but how do you keep the fact that hey, we did this once, people, like we did this once? How do you how do you keep that forefront with your people? 
So the the premise at Cree was we were going to try to keep running it like a startup, even when we got bigger. So, you know, I joined when it was a $6 million company. I became CEO at a hundred million and we would go on to 1.6 billion from a hundred million to 500 million. That's kind of a really big step. The goal was we're going to run this like a giant startup. And I think the culture of innovation, that mindset, Mike, it was really good. And it's really about the people in the key roles. From 500 million to a billion, we said, we're going to just keep going, right? We're just still, we're going to become a billion dollar startup. And I think while philosophically we embraced that idea, it's hard to run a large complex organization through simply the principles of innovation because it's messy stuff. I mean, and that's probably the thing that most organizations as they mature, they don't like messy, right? They want things nice and clean and neat and tidy. And so we added people that were frankly good at managing the business and we got what we wanted but it started to change the culture and then i would say from one to two billion my plan was hey we're just going to keep acting like a startup and if i'm honest about what happened is the company changed a lot that's that next five ten years um because as it got more complicated to run the business there was a lot of pressure to deliver more predictable results. We were a public company, right? So they want the quarterly numbers and missing quarterly numbers is really painful. The metrics we implement in most organizations to reward certain behaviors make us less innovative. And so how do you do it? Um, we purposely put people that were innovation and or leadership biased into the key roles. So we had managers, but we made sure the person ultimately making the call was biased with that mindset. That's kind of a way we did that. But even that at some point starts to lose out. So late in my career in 2013, when the LED bulb came up, we actually had to create a secret project to go do it. We literally put five people who had been around Korea a long time, who thought differently. We put them in a warehouse and we told nobody else in the company where they were going. And in secret over a year, they actually developed the Cree light bulb, built a production line, convinced the Home Depot to put it in all their stores and developed a national TV campaign. And of the 7,000 employees, the day that product launched, less than 50 knew the product existed. And I think that was a big part of just creating an environment where they could be innovative. And so, I, Mike, honestly, I think big organizations inherently struggle with this concept. And I think that tension's tough. So you've had a number of leaders from big organizations or public companies on your pod on this podcast and you yourself have gone from one edge of the spectrum to the other through your career. And so I'm, I'm curious, and there's a couple, there were a couple of questions in this similar vein in there is are, are some organizations just simply not predisposed to be truly innovative? Yeah. I, I think it's very tough to be a your metrics will drive behaviors. It's actually something that uh, when I first started in my career, Mike, I joined Hewlett Packard and Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard were still alive. And uh, I forget which one of them had a saying. He said, but you tell me how someone's measured and I'm going to tell you how they will act every time. And what happens is, is that organizations are actually designed to not be innovative. It's intentional. I mean, if your goal is to deliver some predictable outcome, you're going to create metrics and behaviors that reinforce that. And let's face it. I mean, think about a coach. A coach is probably the most short-term metric job out there, right? We don't just look at the season. Heck, if a coach loses two games in a row, 
people are like, that guy can't coach anymore. And they might've won 10 in a row and they lose. And so, you know, you talk about this incredible pressure. And I think for a coach then, you know, you're, I think most of us want to succeed. We want to, you know, we want to get to the goal. And so I think it's easier to say, Hey, we're going to take what we know, than try something. Now, that being said, my guess is the most innovative people are the ones that essentially get into a situation where they have nothing to lose. A startup has nothing to lose. For example, that's why startups are good at this, right? Like you're like got nothing. And so you might as well try stuff because otherwise you still got nothing. I think a coach, maybe a brand new coach, could probably do some things without expectations. I think once a coach has success, I think it gets harder. I think at some point you probably get successful enough that people will let you get away with it. But I think it's going to be a really tough tension, right? Because you'd have to be willing to get fired to be really innovative. You know, crisis kind of brought us together for the webinar the other night. And 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 we've talked a lot about how crisis is just the it's the kick in the pants everybody needs to change, grow, evolve, embrace innovation. So we had a couple of questions about uh, people recognizing that now is the time to do it. And in my own organization or my team or group, I can get everybody's head wrapped around that. But the follow up question from those same people is how do how do you keep it going once you've evolved, you've changed, you've grown, maybe you've accomplished what it is you wanted to accomplish to survive this crisis. And how do you just not let complacency and normalcy as a couple people have defined it in their questions? How do you prevent that from setting in? The leader has to make sure that there is you're never get there, right? So innovation is not about getting somewhere. It's actually about always going somewhere right? It's the journey part. And so, you know, let's just say we achieve something great as a result of this with your team or in a business. Hey, we've overcome this. The moment you get there, the question is, where do we have to go next? And I will tell you, there's a lot of people that don't, they get tired of being on that constant path. Not everyone is wired. If you read the stories about the original team that worked with Steve Jobs to develop the Mac, once they built the Mac, a big chunk of the team was like, that was cool. We did it. We don't want to work here anymore. We, we we did our thing. I don't have that much energy to keep going. And so really the challenge is the leader has to keep setting a new crisis, whether it's actually a crisis or you have to see the next problem. Let's go work on it, knowing that you're going to get some of them wrong. And you have to realize that do you have the right people that are prepared to keep doing that? And that's not in everyone's DNA. So what you have to decide is, and this was, this was a challenge at Cree. We had people that would help us go from a hundred million to 500 million. And we're going to go to a billion, right? It doesn't mean great. We got to 500. It doesn't really matter. We got to do the next thing. Not everyone had either the right skills for that next step, or more importantly, was motivated to keep giving up a part of their life to do that. And so I think part of this is leader keeping that expectation keep moving the bar and finding people that want to chase the bar. And I think we really miss the second part a lot because think about it. You're going to have to say to that person that it helped you achieve something incredibly important. Thank you for doing that. But if you don't want to keep going, I got to get someone else. And for most of us, that's really tough to do. I know it was for me. You know, uh, another question, more leadership focused than innovative focus is just about the the pressures that exist right now on leaders in, in times of crisis, the need for change and the, and the need for, and I was listening to a podcast earlier with uh, William McRaven, General William, Mc, William McRaven, and, and the, the, uh, the host asked him, you know, what are you, in, in times of 
crisis, what, what do you think the three things that are most important for a leader to do? And he said, first and foremost, you got to be a great teammate and you got to listen. Um, but he said, the second thing is the most important. You have to have the courage to make the decision. And then the third thing is just, you have to lead from the front. And, and there's a, there was a question related to that in a time like this, as a leader in a collaborative organization and, and so much of, of, of what you believe is collaboration and being a teammate, how, how do you balance courage in collaboration as a need to move your organization forward? You know, Mike, I'm, I almost, you started this out with a premise that, that this is a really difficult time for leaders. And I would say I would actually, I disagree with that assumption. It is the easiest time to be a leader. I think most people like to use the word leader, but that's not what they mean. One, I, I've never heard of leading from anywhere but the front. I mean, even if you're, quote, leading from behind, you're really not. It, I mean, the fact is, is that, you know, and there's, this goes back through history. You can study leaders back to the, you know, the Battle of Gettysburg is a great example of, you know, the reason it was won is because the leaders, their team knew what they were thinking and why they were thinking it. And they were communicating and letting people know what's going on. So one, I think communication is critical. And I think this idea that the biggest challenge in leadership is giving people a reason to go do something they wouldn't otherwise do, right? If you don't need a leader to go do something that everyone's going to do anyways, you don't, it just, they're going to go do it anyways. So leadership is about getting them to do something they wouldn't otherwise do. And this moment of crisis forces everyone to go, okay, what do we need to do? And so you've already solved the first problem, which is you've got a context in most people's minds to take this on. But so I actually think le these moments of crisis are leadership moments because they create opportunity and an incentive for change that you're just not going to find otherwise. And some people may not feel that way, but what I would argue is I would wonder if they're really confident being leaders then, or if they're really talking about the word in it with a different definition than what I'm using. To your point, I, I think right now what's what's challenging some people, I would say particularly in our industry, in college athletics, is they're looking for some percentage of success that simply doesn't exist because we've never been there. We don't know. It could be zero. It could be 100. We we do not know. Like In, in a predictable results world, as you like to say, win or lose, do this or that, shoot this percentage, there's no... There's no percentage to put on our situation right now. And the great thing about your book for me is the, the idea of the it's it's just that mindset idea. Like I'm I I believe without a shadow of a doubt, if we could wrap our heads around the opportunity, we are loaded with people that will be able to execute on what we develop. Like execute flawlessly with a high level of attention to detail and we will be successful. But to, to getting their heads wrapped around a concept that doesn't exist, is just, it's, it's hard, you know, and, and, and it's, um, there was a question relative to, uh, we had a one, one athletics question in the, in the queue was about, I got a, I got a coach who's been here 40 years and a coach that's been here two years. And I, and, and I'm trying to convince the guy who's been here 40 years, who's been successful that you need to grow and evolve. And the only thing I would say to that guy is that is hard and it is going to be an everyday process. But I think if you assure that individual that if you'll grow and evolve and expand as a, as a thinker, you are more than equipped to be successful on the other side of it when you actually get down to implementing your plan 
Yeah. So, you know, Mike, one of the challenges um, is that our behaviors are a function of our beliefs and our beliefs are learned through experiences. And according to most studies, by about the time we're 25, our core belief system is fairly well locked in. And as we get older, we reinforce those same beliefs. They don't change. Now, there are life experiences and other things that actually create moments. A crisis is one of them where you could reset some beliefs. But generally speaking, the longer you do something, the harder this is. And I discovered this because I was doing leadership development. And most of these people were in their 40s, right? They'd had 20 years of career success. And we're trying to get them to change fundamental thinking. And the reality was the only way you're going to do that is get them to re-examine the beliefs. And and the, the challenge for that 40-year coach is, is his beliefs are based on, I tried it. It worked. Why would I ever change that again? And in my experience, the only, the best chance for someone like that to get them to embrace a different idea or to change is to change the boundary conditions on them. You can't give them a choice. It, changing beliefs is not an intellectual exercise. It's an experiential exercise. And so putting them in a situation where they're forced that the only alternative is failure. And this is back to this idea we just talked about in the last question, which what is courage? Well, courage is doing something that has a low chance of success, right? But in this moment, there's actually not a low chance of success, right? Like, like what you're doing is not working. So your current chance of success is pretty much zero. So if I try something that's a one in 10 chance, that's still better than zero. And that's how I try to reframe it. But what I would say, Mike, is at Cree, we actually looked at every problem that way. And I think that's the challenge. And so, you know, part of what people are teasing out in this Q&A is how do you create the environment and how do you sustain it? And part of the sustaining it for anyone is you have to keep resetting the expectation that where you're at, if that's not success anymore. And so the you're guaranteed if you do what you do to get what you got before and that's losing, that's when someone's willing to try something different. And I think that's hard to do. And the fact is, is that um, it's going to make people uncomfortable, you know, is the 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 psychology inside all of us is, is most of us are change avoiders. That is how we are wired. And so you have to create a reason to change. So we talked about this a little bit the other day and, and it's, uh, I think everybody agrees with the, uh, the idea of the brutal truth, maybe not the brutal truth in the way you describe it, but constructive feedback, however you want to define it. I, I don't think there's anybody that would disagree that that's, that's a, that's a, a, a great value for an organization to have. I think the majority of people struggle with conflict. And, and so we had a number of questions around the idea of how do you as a leader get people comfortable with the idea of we need to be completely open and honest and transparent with one another if we're going to have an opportunity to continue to grow and be successful. Um, the way we did it, is that we started out by making that a boundary condition for everyone who wanted to be on the team. It's a, it's a, it's a fundamental rule. So here's the deal. We're going to believe in this and you've got to come in. And the way we phrased it is, is everyone has to come in with the expectation that you're responsible for your own mental state, that you're going to start with a position that feedback is constructive and we're here to get better. And if you can't, if that doesn't work for you, that's okay you can't be on this team. 
And what I would say is, is that, so if you're in an existing organization that does not embrace this called the spirit of candor, if you want to come up with a nicer word, but this idea of really brutal constructive feedback, it's going to be really tough because everyone's kind of got to start there. And so that was kind of a, kind of a table stakes to get in the game. You got to agree. That's what we're going to do. And then the second thing is the leader has to become incredibly good at being brutal about themselves because it's got to start with their behavior. So, you know, most conversations that I had with people started out as, look, here's what I screwed up. Here's what I wish I would have done better. Here's an example of when I had this problem, because what I found is that people actually can see it very easily if it's not about them. So you got to get them to one, accept the premise Two, they've got to be able to see it before they have to take it on personally, because then when they go to take it on, now you're going to face this defensive mindset resistance. And, and then once you get that going, there can't be exceptions. One of the challenges we would have is people would start doing it. And then there'd be this moment where it seemed awkward and let's just not do it right now. It'll be uncomfortable. And it blows up because so many of us want to provide constructive feedback behind closed doors. We've actually, it's taught to do that. And the problem with that is, is that if I'm getting the constructive feedback behind closed doors, I don't know if anyone else is being held accountable. And so since we all have that rule that we've all agreed to, that we're all taking it the same way, if it's not out in the open, that reinforces that this is part of the behavior. We're all doing this together. The moment you go behind closed doors, I can just tell you human nature says, why are you picking on me and not everyone else? And so for us, it blew up. So there was a it, one, you got to have people choose to be part of the culture and then you got to reinforce it over and over again. But when you do it, it's, it's amazingly powerful. And what's interesting is it takes a while to learn it. Um, I definitely have people that it took a couple of years to be comfortable with it, but they had to at least choose to want to be a part of it to start with. Right. And so I think if someone says, I don't want to do that, it, it won't work. You can't have conscientious objectors to this process because otherwise it breaks down. Yeah. So within that, and I've used this just the other day, I, and I'll use myself personally, I'm a pretty direct communicator and I, people that I talk with or the people that I work with to help me grow or you have to think about how you communicate with this person and that person and their personality and that personality and the thing that for me that stuck out that has me thinking and you said it here and it was in your book is like the listener too has to prepare themselves for the conversation and so as I look at human resources and the things that we do and we train people to do performance reviews and feedbacks but but I don't know we train people to learn how to hear feedback and so I guess I would ask you, and, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit, and I don't know if there's anything practically you did other than try to live it. And like you said, be the example of the person who's being most honest and brutal about themselves. But, it, but is there anything you did at Cree or anything you know of or you saw where you're, where you're helping people in a really, whether it's a process or structured way to learn how to hear feedback? What I would say is you have to practice on yourself. So my little habit that I developed over the years is I had about a 15 to 20 minute commute home every night and it didn't matter what time it was when I got in the car, my commute home was replay my day and what the part of my day I was replaying were the interactions I had with people. And what I was trying to figure out is where in all these interactions did I not get the result I was looking for? And when I say the result, 
you and I could talk and, and I might say, hey, Mike, I need to give you this. I would replay how you looked. So body language almost never lies. And so I would literally like replay a video of the interactions in my head and I'd go, wow, did their body language make me feel like that worked or not? And I would take the top one or two and the next morning, every day I started with, I'd go back at those. And you know, if the, if I could be with the person and if I could do it in person, that was preferred, but worst case, I'd call them on the phone and just say, Hey, we had this conversation. I'm pretty sure I didn't do a good job of making a point. So tell me, let's, let's get a conversation going. And so I worked on it all the time. And so, you know, essentially every day I was brutally true. I, I practiced brutal feedback on myself, but it didn't seem brutal anymore. It just seemed like I was just always trying to get better. And I never assumed that I had the right answer. And, and by the way, I, I don't want to, I want to be clear. The pressure to make this work is on the leader. Yes, each person has to sign up, but the leader has to do one last thing that's important, which is we had people that sometimes say, hey, the brutal truths are great. I could just be an asshole. And you have to call that moment that that happens. It is critical for the leader to say timeout. That is not acceptable. You've now crossed the line from being constructive about the problem to the person. And that's just not we're not having that. So in other words, you have to, there's no point where you can have an exception because the moment you do, you start, people start to feel bad. And if people feel bad, they're going to do something to avoid feeling bad. It's just how people work. And so it's a lot of work, but it's an amazingly, um, it's just an amazing environment to live in when most of your energy is on the content and getting better and not on context that's, you know, just not real. Two more questions. Uh, one from the from the chat the other night, um, and then one of my own, just generally as a leader. Um, first one, and uh, there were a number of people that asked this, and I think you alluded to a couple in your presentation. But if you think about an industry or two, in your opinion, which which what industries are going to come out on the other side of this in a far better place than where they were before? Uh, the pandemic occurred. I don't think there's any doubt higher ed will. I think that uh, it's being forced to deal with the crisis pr- dramatically right now. And so it'll it'll end up in a better place. And it's an industry that you knew was going to be disrupted anyways, right? So this is just going to accelerate that. I think it'll. when I say come out the other side better, I want to be clear, it won't feel that way for the next couple of years. But I think when we look back five years from now, we're going to realize that that industry was transformed into something that's that will be better. Um, I think we're going to see some things in healthcare that are going to get better. Um, I think this has challenged the system. Look, we've been focused on healthcare and the cost of it, which is a real issue, and you know we have to deal with that. And I think we've been forced to use some technology and think about things in a different way that. Uh, we might end up in a better place there as well. And I, so those would be the two that to me are the most obvious that are going to change. I think the third one is, I think there's a lot of smaller businesses that are being forced to survive right now. And while there's going to be many that will suffer and you know a lot that will not reopen as a result of this, but the ones that do and come out of it, I think they're going to be much healthier, stronger businesses for the experience. And so, um, you know, it's a, I don't want to 
I don't want to minimize the fact that there's a lot of people that will suffer through this process, but the ones that survive will come out stronger. You know, my last question is, and we kind of alluded to this earlier, you know, there's what, as all, as much as this, the, the pandemic has created opportunity, it's also created pressure and anxiety and stress. And I guess I'd ask you as a leader, who's someone who's grown a, a small business to a massive business, who, who did it from a young age to where you are now, if you were talking to leaders now and they were saying, Hey, I, I, I'm, I'm embracing the change. I, I, I have a, an idea of where we need to go. I think I can get my people there, but, but I, within all of that, it's, it's, it's piling and piling and piling on me. And so maybe from a self-care perspective, you know, things that have worked for you, general advice. Like I, I think the one person had a question, this might be the, the greatest question, but I think it leads to where I think some leaders are finding themselves right now. And the, and the person's question was literally any advice is greatly appreciated. <laughs> and so I guess I would, I guess I, that would be a great way to end this. Hey, Chuck, any advice is greatly appreciated. So, you know, there's no silver bullet in this. Um, I think that part of what I what I'm hearing when I talk to other leaders right now, and I've had a chance to talk to many of them who are working through this and struggling, is that they're tired. They feel like they're doing incredible things to try to keep the team motivated and focused. And the word that one of them used recently with me is, I'm just, I'm worn out just trying to get through this. And I think the answer is, is that that's not what we're supposed to be doing. So if your energy is around getting through something, the assumption is it will go away. And that it's like, I got to just get through it. And, and then someday we'll go back to normal. There's not a new normal. Or there is a new normal coming, right? It's going to be different. So imagine if you looked at this and said, okay, it's changed. What do I want to do as a result of that and go make a change that I think could be to our benefit? So instead of taking that energy and being in survival mode, Flip it around. Play offense, not defense, right? Let, let, let's go try to do something with this. This is your chance to try it. Look, it's not all going to work, but it's not all working anyways. And so I think it's really a chance for leaders that are struggling to realize that some of the best ones are trying to survive when instead they should be trying to succeed. And I think when you adopt that mindset, the second one creates energy. And I think that's, you know, as someone who is, you know, dealt with the stress of running a company and, and suffered some of the health problems that come with that. I think that, um, you know, one of the things that happens is, is that you get stuck in a mode where you're uh, constantly an energy giver and that part of it is to find your own energy. So take time for yourself, get a little perspective, get out of the fray. I mean, take a few moments each day to disconnect and think, but then at the same time, Apply the energy with a different purpose, right? Which is to get somewhere. And I think when you do, it really changes kind of how you think about it. People at Cree used to look at me and go, I would get really excited when a big problem would happen. They'd be like, why are you all excited? Because I can see the problem and now I know what we can all go do about it. And that's a human nature thing. And I think that's what people got to find in this moment, Mike, is to realize that, um, and I say find the opportunity, but it truly is one. But you got to convince yourself because if you don't, 
this moment will wear down even the most positive leaders. And uh, the ones I see succeeding see the opportunity, and the ones that are struggling, they're there's no more energy left to give, but it needs to be redirected. Well, Chuck, I want to thank you again for allowing me to be on your show and flip the, flip the, flip the uh, seats on you uh, for once and allow you to, to be the guest on Innovators on Tap. And, and I wish you all the success in the future. And, and, and I hope we, you sell more books, uh, enough books to make you want to write another one. I don't know what this one will be about. Maybe about the analytics of basketball, but that's a whole other, that'll be a whole other uh podcast conversation but but and and i i would be remiss with if i didn't leave with how much i appreciate you mean to me and my family and and, and just as a friend and a colleague and, an, and importantly a mentor uh, i can't i can't tell you how important you've been in helping me grow and develop and i'll, I'll be forever grateful well mike it is thank you for being the the guest host today and and more importantly um don't underestimate how much I've learned from you. You you put you asked me some pretty challenging questions along the way, and and I gave you a, a lot of advice. And the good news is, is you mostly remember the parts that worked. Um, a lot of it didn't, and I think that's kind of the point, right? You just you got to keep trying and going for it. But it's been a pleasure, and thank you so much for uh, for being a part of this. And uh, yeah, there's another book. I uh, we can talk about it over a beer sometime. What one of the new ideas is, but uh, we'll save that for another podcast. Thanks to Mike Broker for joining me on this episode of Innovators on Tap. As a reminder, the webinar is linked in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out the webinar replay for more information and ideas on how to lead during this crisis. And if you're interested in my book, The Innovator Spirit, that was discussed on this episode, you can find it wherever you purchase books, or you can simply buy it through the link in the show notes below. Please note that all profits from the book this month will be donated to a fund that helps financially struggling college students stay in school. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues, because I think we all know of things that could use some innovative thinking. Please feel free to contact us through our website at innovatorsontap.com. We're always open to new ideas or critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.